Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. So, a busy programme ahead of us, and the weather has been fantastic, so I'm sure you've all been out enjoying nature for the past few days, and perhaps a few more days to come before the summer is over. Let's say hello to Terry Flanagan, who's at his home in Dublin 15. How are you, Terry? Derek, I'm great. Now, I wasn't actually out enjoying nature for the last couple of days. I was indoors enjoying nature, but more about that later. Yes, he was at the Natural History Museum in Dublin, which opened its doors after a two-year refurbishment, (coughs) but I believe it's only open on the ground floor now. Richard, you're a big fan of the Natural History Museum in Dublin, the Dead Zoo? Yes, I've always been a fan of the Dead Zoo. It goes way back and I've brought my children there and my grandchildren there. So I, I look forward now to bringing the smaller grandchildren. I have two small little girls, uh, grandchildren, and they have never been there. And I'm looking forward to taking them there soon. Terry's report last week was about the goats on Hoth Head, which have been brought in to help in the fight against wildfires by munching on the vegetation and keeping it low. You're very interested in goats too, I believe, Richard. Yes, I love goats. They're a very attractive animal. Nice place to see goats if you're on the south side is Docky Island. It has a little herd of goats there. Beautiful animals. Traditional Irish goats, I believe, with the big long horns. Very attractive animals they are indeed. Very entrepreneurial animals. The goats can survive in the most unlikely places and they are extraordinary climbers, alpinists. Wonderful creatures. I haven't been out on Dorky Island in many, many years, Richard, but I remember that there was lots of them and also lots and lots of rabbits there. But I had thought that there was an infection in the goat herd there a number of years ago and that they were gone. Well, no, they're not gone. I saw them about a fortnight ago, some. Now, the, most of the island is cordoned off, and rightly so for the breeding terns. There's a fine breeding colony of terns there. So uh, they, the goats have availed of that. They have moved into the area that's cordoned off. And I saw several of them in there in the distance. And the interesting thing, you mentioned the rabbits. The extraordinary thing there is that there, there's a, a very large proportion of the rabbits are black they're melanistic rabbits and if you bring children there you can tell them now let's see who was the first to find a black rabbit they won't have great difficulty there are lots of black rabbits there why are there black rabbits on donkey island and not so many black rabbits elsewhere richard I don't know why precisely. It's possibly that there is no predation, as there would be selective predation elsewhere, and the animal that stood out, that wasn't so well camouflaged, would probably suffer and be eliminated from the population. But on Dockey, there is no such threat. There are no foxes, so far as I know. So there's nothing to selectively kill black rabbits. So I suspect that is the reason they are there. But they were probably introduced there. They're not native to Ireland. But it's interesting to see them. It's an interesting dimension. There are seals there as well, of course, and terns. Terns are very prominent at this time of year. And there's a lovely early Christian church and a fine, well-preserved Martello Tower and a fort. It's an interesting place to go, a lovely place to go, in fact. Going back to the rabbits there, when they were introduced initially, there was probably only a very small number of them were introduced, and maybe a percentage of those were the black rabbits to start with. So genetically, it would have been there, irrespective of the predation. And if there were only a small number introduced and a number of those were black, well, then it would continue down the line, I would imagine. The other thing about the, the island I've often noticed as well, I've been there like you, Richard, many, many times, and it's the number of potholes. And when you're walking across the island, you, you have to be really, really careful that you don't fall into the potholes. I'm sure lots of people have sprained ankles and that. Mm. Well, Niall Hatch has just jumped into studio. Richard, maybe he will know. Niall, you're very welcome to the programme today, as always. Any idea why there are black rabbits on Dawkey Island? Richard has said there's a little population of them out there. There are, and you, you often see them on the island. And often when I've been watching across from Collymore Harbour and Dawkey, looking at the terns and the other seabirds you get out there, you see lots of black rabbits on the island. Now, one of the reasons why you see them, um, and they can seem there's a disproportionately large amount of them compared to the normal grey-brown coloured mm-hmm. rabbits, is they stick out like sore thumbs. So the normal coloured rabbits are more common 
camouflage so you see the, the black ones more clearly but there's a couple of theories behind that uh, one is perhaps that people have been releasing pet rabbits out there uh, and pet rabbits obviously there's all sorts of colour mutations some of them have been bred to be to be black and white and all different colours so that's one reason they could survive out there it could also be a natural mutation that's happening uh, in the population that isn't being selected against because there are very few predators out there on the island yes Richard was saying that yeah, yeah so if, if yes yeah, so exactly so if, if a black rabbit um, spontaneously um, comes about on, on the mainland here it sticks out like a sore thumb as I said so a fox or some other predator or buzzard would get it very quickly at Andoki Island there isn't the same sort of pressure so those um, abnormally coloured rabbits survive and then go on to reproduce pass those genes on to the next generation and natural selection isn't weeding them out so that could be the reason no, so you were right Richard and Terry both of you were right Niall just came in there oh, <coughs> I won't say anything to him about being a little bit late <laughs> bang on time Derek bang on time <laughs> now as he mentioned earlier Terry was at the Natural History Museum in Dublin one of the lucky ones to be able to get in because as I understand it now you can't just rock up and walk in you need to book a ticket in advance because so many people wish to attend it's one of the most popular visitor attractions in Dublin city centre and why not given what it is anyway so a lot of work has been done over the past two years it has been closed for that period it needed to be refurbished I was going to say badly but it it needed to be refurbished properly and it was and I believe that the Irish room which is the ground floor is now open Terry Yes, what a wonderful place the Natural History Museum is, the Dead Zoo as it's known, with those well-polished wood and brass fittings. You know, it's like stepping back in time, going back into that Victorian era, and huge numbers of people visit every year. Now, I know it's been closed, but before it closed, it was getting something like 320,000 visitors a year, and there's something like 2 million specimens present in it. It opened last week, and I was lucky enough to get back and to view it. So I met up with Paolo Viscardi, who is the deputy keeper of the museum, and he brought me on a tour of both downstairs and upstairs. Paolo. Hey, Terry, how are you? I'm back. Very good. Come on in. And I'm back in today. First one in today, yeah. Back before the the crowd arrives. Yes, indeed, yeah. It's been been busy since we reopened, and it's great to have uh, the public back in the space. Well, I can tell you, the first thing I notice when I come in is it's very similar to what it was. I can see the, the great Irish deer. But the one thing I know is how clean everything is. It, everything is spotless. I can see the lights that are kind of shining off the glass. Yeah, it's, um, to be honest, we haven't really done much in this area in the Irish room during the, the work because all yeah. the work was happening upstairs. Down here, we literally just had huge props holding the ceiling up. Yeah. Um, and we had to move a few things around because of all of that. So... All we've done down here, really, is to move everything back into its position and clean the glass. Now, as you say, this is the Irish Room. I think it's been the Irish Room since, what, 1910 or so. And what we see here are Irish animals, and they're all in cases. I'm looking here at a spoonbill, and we're looking at the birds. You also have some fossils from the ancient oceans here I'm looking at as well. But these are all Irish, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So this floor really represents um, the natural history of Ireland. So that's the biodiversity and the geodiversity as Mm. well. So um, it means that you've got things like the giant deer, which obviously aren't roaming the countryside today, but also things like the hyena, these fantastic fossils from caves in Cork um, of hyenas, which used to live in Ireland. So this floor isn't just about Ireland today. It's about Ireland in the past. And that kind of period, well, for the last few thousand years where people have been in Ireland and it has changed and this floor represents all of that mm-hmm. and it also represents animals which have come to Ireland as visitors and, and well the ones here never managed to make it back home um, but usually it's because there have been storms so you get an awful lot of birds that get blown off course. Now I see that the basking shark is back up in the ceiling again. Yeah, the basking shark has been there throughout, so um, we just covered him over and tried to keep him as safe as possible. So essentially, through all the work, the animals in this floor, they remained here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, very you really just closed off the top two floors? That's right, the top floor and then the balcony levels. Mm-hmm. All of those areas were closed off, and the balconies were completely emptied. So that's all of the invertebrates of the world and all of the birds and fish and reptiles... All of those were completely removed from the building and taken off-site. OK, we'll go up there in a moment. Before we go up, something I haven't seen here before is the Wonder Cabinet. Explain to me a little bit about this. So the Wonder Cabinet is a, it's a new installation, relatively new. Um, I think around 2019 that came in. 
And it's just an opportunity for our education team to have a space where they can have some touching objects. So there are right. objects here you can actually touch and interact with. And, that, yeah. um, and there are new bits of taxidermy which help. There's a beautiful one up here. Sorry for going across here. A peregrine falcon just about to pounce on a pigeon. Yeah, this is a beautiful bit of taxidermy. Um, this was done by Jasmine Miles Long. She's a taxidermist based in the UK, and she's really, really good, um, very sensitive uh, uh, to kind of the subject matter. And it's beautiful. And one of the things I love about this is that you can see it from so many different angles. Yeah, because there's, underneath it here, there's a mirror. There's a mirror here, and there's also a periscope off to the side, so you can yeah. see it from the front oh, yeah, as well. Yeah. So you get to see it from lots of different perspectives, which gives you this fantastic view all around of this really dramatic moment which has just been captured yeah. um, through the art of taxidermy. So education is still very important here in the museum. Oh, of course it is, yeah, yeah, very important. Because I remember bringing kids here back 20, 30-odd years ago and they were blown away by it. There are very few places where you get a chance to experience the full diversity of life yeah. on the island. You know, you can watch TV programmes and you'll capture little glimpses as you go, but here you're surrounded by it. You can walk through this building and everywhere you look you'll see something different, something unusual. You don't necessarily realise that you share this country with these animals. OK, can we take a visit upstairs to see how the work is going up there? Yeah, so you will not recognise... Uh, you will not recognise it upstairs. It's a very different place to, uh, to how it was last time you came to visit. Um, now we're moving up here into the first floor. You probably won't remember oh. it looking like this. No, I certainly don't remember this at all. All I can see along the whole length of the floor is one skeleton. It's a changed place, all right. It's a very different uh, space. We've tried to remove anything which is going to get badly dusty. Yeah. Um, we've certainly boxed in all of the cases and the specimens that are in those cases. They're all wrapped in, you know, covered in plastic and then boxed in to protect it from all the building work that was happening up here. But the single biggest change in the space is probably this whole new floor that's been added above our heads. Right. Um, so this was a glass ceiling. And from that, you had the two whales that were suspended. And obviously, we removed those whales back in 2020. And since then, there has been this whole new floor built in the museum beneath that glass ceiling so that workmen can get up there and understand what's going on with the building. And the Office of Public Works and the architects there are going to be able to get a really good picture in their heads of, of how the building was put together because there are no blueprints. There are no plans of this building. So we need to get in and explore and investigate and start to actually understand how the building was put together. And from that point, we can then start making the changes that need to be made to make it weatherproof, because at the moment the roof leaks. Now, essentially, the real problem was the roof. Isn't that, isn't that why all of this work came about? Absolutely. Um, so it was, it was getting quite bad for a while, um, you know, little leaks here and there. But then in 2018, you've got the beast from the east come roaring in and the snow from that blew into the roof space settled and then melted over the course of a week or so and we basically had rain falling constantly into this gallery space here and was there much damage caused to the animals not really and we were very quick to respond so i kind of rushed around building tents for the elephant and the hippo and all these big open display items and then we well obviously the cases themselves offered a degree of protection so we had to make sure that they were all cleaned off and dried and removed any of the really quite filthy water that was pouring from the ceiling. Did you lose anything? No, no, nothing was lost. Probably one of the biggest jobs you had was taking down those whales because they were absolutely huge. Yeah, I mean, the fin whale was 20 metres long. It was probably a couple of tonnes in weight and it was very inaccessible. So that, that was a big challenge and uh, there was an awful lot of very careful planning involved in that. So uh, I was delighted that when it all worked mm -hmm. and went through without a major well, hitch. What I was amazed at was the whales, the, the skeleton of the whales. They weren't all bone. No, no. Well, the smaller of the two, the humpback whale, was, that was all pretty much bone and you know, with a steel arm, well, with an iron, a wrought iron armature. But the fin whale, we were surprised actually at just how much plaster timber even bits of leather had been used in its in its construction so we know that a fairly complete whale would have been originally acquired but 
we don't have a fairly complete whale there now. There's probably only maybe about 60% of it is intact. So Now, when you're replacing that, when you're putting that back up on display again, will you make more parts for it? Yeah, I think these days what we tend to do is go with a 3D printing approach because it's much lighter weight than building in plaster. You don't really want to be suspending heavier weights than necessary at that sort of height. So I, I don't think we'd take the same approach that was taken historically because we've got new materials available to us. And the materials, what would they be? There are, there are a range of different materials that could be used. So Plastics or resins yeah, or something Yeah, like we, we tend to be quite cautious about materials like plastics because, you know, in theory, they last forever. In practice, they deteriorate quite badly in sunlight. So you need to make sure you use the right sorts. So um, it's not just about it being lasting forever. It's a case of it lasting in the state that it's in at the moment forever. You don't want it to get more brittle. You don't want it to start changing colour. Um, those are the sorts of things that we need to consider. So we have you know, a lot of testing. We have the, there's this thing called a noddy test where you, you put something in, a, in an environment where you, it's a warm, humid environment with some, some little metal discs of different sorts of metals. And you can see what kind of gases are given off by that material over a period of a month or so. And it helps you understand how it's going to deteriorate over time. So the museum world has an awful lot of tests for understanding what kind of materials are good to use um, and what isn't appropriate. So we'll make sure that whatever we choose will be an appropriate material because the last thing we need is to have to come and redo it all again in five years' time because we picked the wrong material. So tell us then what's going to happen here on this first floor now over the next couple of months. I know the public will not be allowed in. No. So um, really what we're waiting for now is um, we've put together a, like a business case to say what we want to do with the building to make the roof appropriate, you know, make it fit for purpose. Waterproof is always a good place to start. But also we want to, if we can, improve access. So we want to be able to put in lifts. We want to make sure that the building is really appropriate for the collections it holds instead of it just being you know, an old building which we're making do with um, and things are deteriorating quite badly. So that's, that's the plan. We've put forward a business case for that and what we're waiting for now is to just see whether or not that plan that we've put forward is going to be accepted and if that's going to work. And if so, then we can move on with the next phase which will be actually making it happen. It's great to be able to get back in again and to see those animals up close. It's fantastic. Yeah, and this is really why we were keen to reopen downstairs because you know, we could be closed for the whole time until all the work is done, but we just thought we can open downstairs. We want the public to be able to come in, to be able to engage with these you know, incredible specimens. And ideally, we would stay open downstairs as long as we can until we have to close that as well for major refurbishment for the rest of the building. And when that's happening, you know, we, we'll try to find another way of engaging people with the collections, however, however that may be. We have some thoughts, but I'm not going to explore those right now. But ideally, what we do is we make this collection that we have here. You know, we have over two million objects. They're incredible collections, and we want to make them as publicly accessible as we can. You know, it's really important. We, we exist for two real reasons, to look after the collections and to you know, basically support the public in their enjoyment of those collections so now the museum is open again to the public and they can come but they have to book is that right yeah that's right so um as you can probably imagine we've been closed for a while huge numbers of people want to come and visit and you know we're very happy about that but at the same time we've only got a limited capacity in the building and we've only got so many staff um, and there's only so many kind of exit routes fire exits and so on so just to stay within you know fire regulations we we have to manage the number of people in the building so we're saying we're asking people to book because otherwise we can't keep track of numbers. Come and visit us, but do make sure you book in advance. So you can go to the bookings page on museum.ie. It's easy to find and it's free. You don't have to pay anything, but we do need you to book. Well, I must say I've enjoyed my day back here again. I've always loved coming to the Dead Zoo. It's always been a treat to come here. And to see it now, to see it so clean and those animals so vibrant, it's well worth a visit and I'd recommend it for anyone. Thanks so much, Terry. It's great to have you here. So there goes Terry Flanagan-Nile. Are you a regular visitor to the Natural History Museum in Dublin? I don't like it being called the Dead Zoo, by the way. I, I, <laughs> I, I always was a regular visitor to it. I haven't been to it since it reopened, so I'm going to correct that very soon. I'm looking forward to getting back. It's one of my favourite places in Dublin. A museum of a museum, as they say. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm showing you a sheet of paper, and on it are a series of images. So can you describe what those images are, Nile, if you would, please? Yes, absolutely. A remarkable series of images showing a bottlenose dot 
dolphin, mm-hmm. the same species as fungi, seemingly tossing a salmon, it seems, into the air, a very large salmon, flipping it up in the air, flicking it up and playing with it, catching it in its mouth. It's a really remarkable series of images, and I've never seen anything quite like it. So the photographer certainly did very well to capture this. It's incredible. It's a terrific picture. Now, we keep an eye on the ways in which wildlife finds its way into social media on Mooney Goes Wild, with, of course, a particular interest in Irish mammals, birds, insects and marine life, whether it be on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. And a colleague of mine, Michael Lawless, so hello to Michael and thank you, sent me these images that Niall is referring to there during the week. They were taken by Damien Jackson, which can be seen now on our Facebook page or on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. They've already been enjoyed by thousands in the last few days. Anyway, the man who took the pictures joins us now from his home. Hello, Damien. Where exactly are you? Hi Derek, I'm in Tremor in County Watford. That's where I live and uh, I tend to travel around the country in a little camper van at weekends whenever I get the opportunity, just following my passion for photography. So you're a keen photographer. Would you describe yourself as a professional photographer or an oh. amateur photographer? Oh, I'm, I'm totally amateur, but um, I suppose I've been at it quite a while. So um, it's, it's more of a passion than a hobby for me. Well, I have to say, you were definitely in the right place at the right time. So tell us about this series of images. This series of images were taken in Carlingford Lock at approximately 8am on Friday the 29th of June. I had been up in that area because I was due to photograph a triathlon in Newry uh, the following day. But I always take the opportunity to go and try and get a nice sunrise or sunset shot. So this morning I went down to the beach at Grinor. Now, Greenore is where the ferry goes across to Greencastles. And I was just on the beach taking some shots of, there's some small little fishing boats moored there. I was hoping for a colourful sunrise, but it was a very calm, still and I suppose misty morning. So I was a little disappointed from the colour point of view. After about 10 minutes, I noticed a, a dolphin raise his, his um, I suppose, humpback and his fin out of the water. And as he was frolicking around, his tail fin came up. So it was like one of those classic um, whale shots that you you see from the Arctic or Antarctic. And um, so that took my interest. But I've seen a lot of dolphins here in in Tremor around as well. So, you know, I I, I didn't take much, much notice. After a few minutes, then I heard a splash and there was a flurry of activity. And that's when I I jumped to change the lens into a telephoto lens. Uh, My hands were trembling at this stage, I suppose, because um, what I saw was a a fish, which I presumed looked like a salmon flying through the air, being chased by the dolphin. And I just realised in my own head from being out so often shooting that, you know, time to time you get a once in a million chance. And this could have been one of them. Now, at the time, I didn't think... I didn't know, I suppose, whether the dolphin was going to reappear again because it was intermittent. And I just looked at the series of shots, the action shots. They were, they all happened between 7.57am uh, and 8.08. So it was about nine minutes, I suppose, ten minutes. But in between that, he'd disappear. And of course, you're on, you're on the watch uh, and you're waiting for him to reappear again and you're trying to look for ripples, you're trying to look for any evidence of where he's going to come up again. But of course, when you're looking through a telephoto lens, it's like having blinkers on. You, you only see a certain area. You, you can't see the same, I suppose, um, as your eyes. That, that, you know, if you're looking out over the lock with your eyes, it's easy. He might pop up on the left or he might pop up on the right. But when you're looking through a telephoto lens, you, your area is, it's, is much narrower. So it was... Um, it was almost just wait and hope that I was fast enough on the trigger to to catch the shots. Looking at the series of images, I'm not sure if the dolphin has thrown the salmon around out of the water or if the salmon is leaping out of the water to avoid the dolphin. What do you think? You were there. I was there and I would reckon that the dolphin was playing with the salmon. I didn't, what I couldn't figure out, not even from the shots now, as to, obviously I think, the dolphin was throwing the salmon in the air. But whether it was with his mouth or he was propelling it into the air with his tail, 
I'm not sure. And I don't even know if dolphins do that. But um, that's what it seemed like because the, the action, the moment of propulsion seemed to come from slightly under the water. So I didn't actually catch that moment. But there were other times I could see it. It was a bit too far away to photograph. He was going around with the salmon in his mouth and then he'd just throw him up again and, and release him. So it almost seemed like he was playing with his food rather than a chase. There was a chase on. Now, I presume it, it might have been a mix of both, you know. I've been to uh, Greenore quite a few times, Damien, and I've never been lucky enough to see a spectacle like this or even to see a bottlenose dolphin there. So it's a really good sighting. Uh, it's a great area for birds, which is why I'm often there. But I always keep an eye out for right. marine mammals as well. Uh, seeing a, a salmon at sea is rare enough as well. So mm-hmm. it's actually you've done, you've done amazingly well to capture two very right. elusive forms of wildlife. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think that what was happening here was that this, this dolphin was flinging this salmon out of the water. I'm sure that the salmon wasn't terribly happy with the whole the whole situation. So when we're saying playing, I think only one of them was benefiting from this play. It's something that dolphins do to sort of hone their skills uh, and it can often be seen as quite cruel. That's also obviously transferring our human emotions onto these animals which isn't isn't necessarily fair at all. But because we like to think of dolphins being so friendly uh, we tend to be taken aback when we see this kind of cruel behaviour as it might might be termed. The dolphins can see it that way. Here's here's playing with its food uh, and honing its skills. But it just shows how agile um, the dolphins are. That a a fish that's as strong a a swimmer as a salmon, it can actually be uh, be subject to this kind of torment from a dolphin and be flung around. It can't escape from it. Uh, so did you see that the, the salmon was actively trying to escape or had it given up the fight at that stage? I would think there, were, there was still some fight left in, in the salmon. But uh, as you can see from one of the images, he, he must be, what, he must be two or three metres into the air and, and the, the dolphin is just following on. So what, what amazed me was, uh, exactly as you said there, the, the speed and the suppleness of the dolphin in the water to be able to keep up with such a, a smaller creature, if you like, and yet a powerful smaller creature. Uh, and um, that the dolphin never seemed to have any fear that the salmon was going to get away from him at any stage. You know, he was quite comfortable to, to throw it around and then catch it again and all of that. And roughly how far were you away from the scene when you were photographing it? Um, I suppose 50, 60 metres, maybe 40 at times. It, it varied because um, the series of images there, they happened over, you know, eight minutes. So he could disappear for 40 seconds and I wouldn't, I wouldn't see him at all. So, yeah, it, it was difficult to know exactly, you know, what was, what was happening. And of course... I was um, excited as well because I knew that this, if it worked out, this was going to be a a once in a lifetime capture and possibly even a a once in a lifetime sighting because um, I had never seen anything like this before, you know. Richard. I think we misinterpret completely the behaviour of dolphins. We use the word play. But this is a very serious business. It is not just superficial passing the time activity as play would suggest. Now, Damien, I think you've got it spot on there. That particular dolphin was on its own and it caught a salmon. And there was no prospect of that salmon escaping. Normally, bottlenose dolphins are in schools with several dolphins around. So that's no place to throw your your salmon up in the air because your rivals are there. The neighbours will grab it on you. But you could practice your skills out there in Carlingford where no other dolphin is around and no prospect of that salmon escaping. Now, I think it's extremely important that for lots of animals to do this kind of thing, the family cat will train its kittens by teasing the mouse. Meerkats do it. Great white shark footage from recent times shows seals being thrown up in the air. Famous photographs by great photographers show that very well. Monkeys do it. The octopus does it. I believe that otters throw pebbles and I've even read that wasps in the nest 
wrestle with each other. Now, it's all about love and war. You have got to be the top of your powers when you compete with others. You're at war with your peers. You also have to beat them to the ladies, if you're a male, and mate with them rather than have a rival do it. So you have got to excel in this and you have got to practice those skills. And I think that is what goes on in the dolphin world. Now, it has a nominous side. Dolphins have a large relative. We call it the killer whale, but it's really a large dolphin. In recent times, these animals have started to attack yachts off the Iberian Peninsula. It's become a major problem. Now, they do this because they're great innovators. And that's another factor in this salmon thing, trying out new things. What if I let the fish go further away than usual and I go after it and see if I can still catch it? That sort of innovation, tricks and things, a new skill, a new string to their bow. And that seems to be what's happening out of the Iberian Peninsula. They've started to take the rudders off pleasure yachts. They don't attack trawlers. The runners and trawlers are too strong, presumably. But it has become a major problem. A friend of mine recently, taking his yacht down there, sailed outside the continental shelf in order to avoid this particular problem. So this is this is interesting stuff, and it's serious stuff. Yeah, it really is interesting how we humans project our own hopes and desires on these wild animals. Uh, they they don't care what we think of them uh, and they are doing everything they can to hone their skills. Those orcas off the Iberian Peninsula may well see those boats as being a threat. There was one of the one of the theories was that perhaps that some of their young had actually been injured or even killed mm. by some of these boats and they had a grudge against them. And we're talking very intelligent creatures. So they're able to, to, to put two and two together and realise these humans in these devices are causing these injuries and we want to get them out of here. And not only that, they've realised that by going for the rudders, they can disable those boats, which is pretty pretty clever um, and it's far beyond what most animals would be able to do. And the same with this bottlenose dolphin up in, in Carlingford Lock. Uh, this type of, of play, let's call it, even though it might have a, a more sinister purpose um, and, and certainly it's, it's also very, very much for honing their skills, it really is about innovation. It's about practice. It's about uh, making sure that that animal is the fittest it can be. Almost like target practice for a hunter, I suppose. It has this opportunity by itself to use this this salmon to hone its own skills without being interrupted by other dolphins. So I think that uh, you're right, Richard. I think the fact that this dolphin was on its own without any others of its own species around was a big contributing factor here. Yeah, and Damien, all you did was take a photograph. <laughs> That's it. That's it. You didn't know what you were going to start here on Mooney Goes Wild. No, no. You know, right place, right time. And, you know, I'm a firm believer as well that, you know, if you get out enough into nature then you know you increase your chances of something out of the ordinary happening and you know that's just what happened here yeah you got to be in the right place at the right time as you said damien it's a terrific photograph can i ask you did you actually see the dolphin consume the salmon no but no. i have images of the salmon in the dolphin's mouth mm-hmm. and afterwards i stayed on for 20 minutes after it, and the dolphin just um, began frolicking around as he had yeah. before this series of images. So I was presuming he had he had finished playing with it and decided to, to munch it down, but no, I didn't actually see. Or it could um, be a case of the dolphin that. telling its mate, you want to see the size of the salmon I almost <laughs> caught today. <laughs> it was yeah. ginormous. Because to tell you, it's a big salmon. It is indeed, yes. You you can see the size of the dolphin and you can see the salmon in the dolphin's mouth. (laughs) It's a big fish. He is big, yeah. Yeah. Any fisherman would have been happy. If Ken Whelan was here now, he'd be wetting himself. He'd be salivating, (laughs) I can tell you. Anyway, are you going to enter it into any competitions? Listen, I've got lots of um, advice, so to speak, if you like, from the social media. Oh, enter the BBC and enter this and enter that. And so, look, I I definitely have to look into it because... um, as I said, look, this is it's more than likely not going to happen to me again. But um, yeah, I would like to, to enter it into some of the wildlife competitions. You may even be able to enter it into our competition next year. I mean, you've taken it now after January, so it'll, we'll qualify under the rules. And just the fact that you're on the radio doesn't mean anything. So anyway, look, okay. good luck with it. It's a terrific photograph, I have to say. Go to our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney and have a look at this. And Damien, congratulations on a terrific photograph. Thanks very much, Derek, and thanks to all the team there. Bye!
Bye bye. Really fascinating stuff, isn't it, Richard? Yes, it is great stuff. It was a, so much can be deduced from a few photographs instantly taken. Uh, it is a marvelous sequence. I now think. you take lots of pictures over the years. You have taken many, many photographs. Did you ever get one of those kind of moments that you're very proud of? Well, yes, you do find them. I was in a forest in um, South Africa in Shoshlui, I, I think walking along and I look up and over my head is a leopard with an impala and he's stopped chewing the impala and I'm down below with my camera he looks at me and I look at him I don't want to interfere with his lunch and I also don't want to become his lunch (laughs) (laughs) did you take a picture (laughs) I took several pictures of that which um, turned out to be uh, probably a little bit overexposed and things like that but it was, it's, that's the sort of thing that you never forget. Mm, and just a tiny bit shaky too, I have no doubt. <laughs> anyway, listen, while I have you both here, I want to ask you about Manx Shearwaters. Niall, will you tell our listeners what a Manx Shearwater is, please? With pleasure, because it's one of my very favourite birds. So the Manx Shearwater is a seabird. Uh, it's largely black and white, as many of our seabirds are. It's black above and white below. has very long, slender, pointed wings. And it's a, it's a medium-sized seabird. It's about, about the size of a a small gull, maybe a black-headed gull kind of size, if people know that species. Now, it's a bird that we have all around the Irish coast. They breed in big numbers on various of our islands, especially off the south and west coasts. But most people aren't aware they exist because it's a bird that is nocturnal around the nesting season. They spend the days out at sea. They only come back to their burrows at night. And they spend most of their lives wandering around in a big figure of eight shape around the Atlantic Ocean. So if you're very lucky or you know where to look, if you're scanning from a headland or from a beach, especially in late summer, you may see hundreds of these birds streaming past, often quite far out at sea. A telescope certainly helps um, to to find them. And what you notice is they shear the waves. They shear over the water, hence the name. They flip from side to side. And so what you'll see is as they're gliding over the waves, they'll turn towards you and you'll see maybe the black above and then it'll flash white below. And it looks like like lights blinking on and off. Oh wow! Um, But they're birds that really don't want to be near us humans. Uh, In fact, sometimes when you see them, when when they're taken into care of one is found injured, they don't really have any fear of humans they don't even know what we are we're just we, we inhabit almost completely different universes and this is a bird that wants to be at sea just has to come to nest in the, in the burrows to raise its chicks um, so big numbers of them around the Irish coast but a bird that most people aren't aware of I'm not sure that they're that fearful of us because when you travel across the Irish Sea and you stay on deck as I always do to watch out for sea life Shearwaters pass very close. You think the bow is going to hit them and they wheel right past the bow. They do their own thing. They seem to ignore us. But I have an idea. Uh, It's been in my mind for a long time. Uh, But I don't know how to um, flesh it out. And it is this. We do dawn choruses and I have led dawn chorus outings and things Mm -hmm. like that. People have to get up at four o'clock in the morning and go out to hear the birds. But is it just about possible? Next time, Derek, you do your dawn chorus, Mm -hmm. could we have a nice chorus? Somebody go on to Puffin Island. The last time I heard it was on the Blaskets, the Great Blaskets. It wasn't a tremendous chorus but it was a bit of a chorus but that is the sound that I think everybody in Ireland should hear it is our part of our heritage it is the greatest of all the weirdest of all sounds but it would be wonderful if somehow we could bring it to the public in fact as well as on the air Absolutely. Everything is possible, Richard. It's a bit late this time of year. We'll have to wait until next year, will we not? not? Yes, it'll time in quite nicely, actually, with our early May dawn chorus. Yeah. They will be they will be uh, making that sound there. And Richard's right, it's a remarkable sound. And um, There's many stories going back for, for many, many centuries of shipwrecked sailors finding mm. themselves on, on remote islands, hearing the sound at night. And some people actually were so frightened by it that they were supposed to have actually committed suicide by jumping into the sea because they thought that these were the spirits of other departed sailors Goodness. in the shipwreck. It's mm. such a bizarre sound. Anyway, speaking of Manx shearwaters, as you've heard, they are extremely mobile. When finding food for their chicks, they will quite often travel from Ireland to the centre of the Atlantic and back again for a single meal. On Little Salty, a small island off the southeast coast, researchers attached tiny trackers to the feathers of Manx shearwaters. The aim of the study was to understand how 
underwater visibility affects seabirds' ability to forage for fish and other prey. It is the first study to examine the impact of ocean clarity on seabirds and it found that climate change could be making it harder for seabirds to feed. Jamie Darby is a marine biologist at University College Cork and lead author of the study and he joins us now from the studio on campus. Hi Jamie, how are you? Thanks for giving us your time today. No problem at all. So tell us about this study you're involved in, please. No, so we put little biologging devices on the backs of these seabirds to see where they're going during the breeding season to feed. Mm-hmm. So they're bringing food back for their chicks. We just wanted to see the important foraging areas and also how they were diving, how deep they were diving, how often they were diving, what kind of energetic constraints they face, how how they spend their time basically at sea. And these tags give us a really detailed idea of how they do that. Now, before we get into talking about specific birds, can you describe the tag for me? It's 3.5 grams and it's quite streamlined. It needs to be aerodynamic and hydrodynamic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we set it just behind the highest point on the bird's back just to let them dive and fly easier so it's not catching in the wind. And it's less than 1% of their body weight. So we think we're getting a pretty good indication of what their natural behaviour would be. It'd be the equivalent to one of us walking around with a bag of sugar on our back. It wouldn't really uh, distress us too much, you know. Well, I've got several bags of sugar in my belly. At the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but are you sure it doesn't interfere with the bird's natural behaviour? Of course, it must do something. We always have to take that into account. But we think recently our tagging technology is after getting really streamlined and light and... To be honest, the limit for tagging studies is usually 3% of the bird's body weight. Mm-hmm. Now we're down to 1%. But all the same, we're not seeing a huge difference between the amount that they're flying between the 3% and the 1% tags. However, we do see, they think we might see a difference in the depth they can dive to with the different sizes of tags, which yeah. makes sense. There might be a buoyancy just... I, I was going to say, it's acting yeah. as a flotation device almost. Exactly, and you yeah. know so when you've got that. little arm floats on, how difficult it is to go underwater sometimes. And Absolutely. for a bird, maybe this light as it may be, maybe having a little impact on that bird feeding. Exactly, it, yeah. It's feeding underwater, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our Manx Shearwaters dive to about 50 metres is their maximum dive depth. Which is pretty serious. It's more than, you know, most divers will ever make it to. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about the Manx Shearwater, if you would. It's a burrow-nesting seabird. So most people, even if they visit a Manx Shearwater colony, will never actually see them. So during the day on the island, they're just underground in burrows, either dug by rabbits or puffins or themselves. And then they come and go at night from the burrow. And when they land into land, they're pretty good at swimming and flying, but they're not very good at walking. So they kind of crash land into the vegetation and find their way to the burrow entrance. Uh, so they're about 400 grams. They have a big wingspan, so they're very mobile. They can travel out to the middle of the Atlantic for a feed. And, yeah, they're black and white. They're quite pretty. Uh, they use their smell to find food over broad distances, and then on, over small scales they use sight. I'm amazed they can smell anything, given that they feed on a diet of fish. Oh, I know. <laughs> How good is their olfactory sense? It's pretty good. I mean, we think that they use uh, dimethyl sulfide is the name of the chemical. That It's emitted when something feeds on zooplankton at sea. So they can tell when there's some sort of prey aggregation over broad scales. And it seems to be really sharp and they can, you know, pick up these tiny amounts of it in the air that we would never have a hope. They have it, they're in the family tube nose. Mm-hmm. And this means that they have olfactory... Uh, channels just above their bill. So same as the albatross, they're in the same family as that. And storm petrels and fulmers in Ireland are the same family as well. And we think most of these use smell to some degree to figure out where the food is. Right, so they're not just following fishing trawlers? No, Manx Shearwaters actually seem to stay away from trawlers, if anything. Oh, that's interesting. Why yeah. is that, do you think? Not so sure, actually. It's, an, it's a really interesting one because fulmers are relatively closely related and they tend to flock to trawlers straight away. You know, they even use their smell to figure out where the trawlers are. But Manx Shearwaters seem to keep away from them. We're not quite sure why. Maybe they know there's danger being around nets, perhaps. Who knows? Richard? Hello, Jamie. You bring back memories. I remember catching Manx Shearwaters in the days before these wonderful tags you have nowadays. We used to catch them at night with torches. They would fly in. Wet nights were the best. And you could dazzle the bird when it landed and hold the torch towards its eye and then you could bring your hand around and catch it. They were remarkable birds. They had ferocious uh, bills and claws and things. Hmm. And you ended up with lots of beautiful scars which you showed to people at dinner parties and things (laughs) like that, you know. It always struck me, Jamie, that this is a very self-effacing bird. It's all into secrecy. Most people have never heard of a Manx Shearwater 
members of the public, the men in the street, never heard of the Manx Water, I think. Uh, and yes, it is a highly successful character. Compared with the puffin, who is very flamboyant, they do the same thing. They feed on in the sea, they have burrows nesting and all the rest of it. But the Manxie, it seems to me, is a more successful formula. He is a flying seabird, but it seems to me extraordinary that he's also a superb diver. If you are very good at flying, you tend not to be so good at diving because your body adapts for one or the other. But the Manx, it seems to me, is able to straddle the divide. I would you agree? I would. And, you know, it's interesting, actually, because they. it seems to me that they have to do any two of three things well. So they can, you know, either walk really well on land, they can fly really well, or they can dive really well. And most seabirds tend to do two of those well, and the third not so well. So puffins, for example, they put a lot of energy into flight because their wings are quite short. Uh, whereas Manx shearwaters have really lo- large wingspans. So on land, they're not very good at um, making the way around. Whereas in the air, in the water, they're at home, you know. We are into dawn choruses on the Booney Show. However, I think the most extraordinary chorus, although it is not a chorus, the greatest sound of Irish nature is the cacophony of Manxshire waters on a lonely island in the dead of night, in the mist and the rain. Here is this extraordinary, raucous, frightening song that they go through together. I think it's the most wonderful. For such a self-effacing bird, he does all he's displaying in this situation with all the shouting and roaring. Yeah, it's an amazing sound. Really, really, really love that sound as well. It just reminds me of, you know, wonderful time spent on islands working with these birds. And I'd love to know, you know, some people who go camping on offshore islands who'd have no idea what about the seabird life that's there. Do they ever get a surprise when it gets dark and this starts? They, you know, do they ever think, what am I after getting myself into here? When they hear, you know, hundreds of Manx shearwaters flying around and making this, it's a really kind of sinister cackling sound in ways. Like, I love it. But if you didn't know what it was, it might be quite haunting. I remember camping. One of the things that used to happen is that a Manxie would crash into the tent. The Manxies thought they knew the topography of the island, places like Puffin Island. We used to go to Puffin Island. And they would fly in confident there would be nothing in the way. And the next thing is you'd hear a thump, a Manxie hitting your tent. They'd fly off again. You wouldn't be able to pick them up or anything. But they seem to work with an internal mental model of their environment. But you have been looking at something very interesting. And that is sight in Manx Shearwaters, sight underwater. And you say that is changing. The degree to which a bird can see its prey and navigate underwater is altering. Is that true? Yeah, so we looked at their flight, uh, sorry, their dive depths in response to different levels of turbidity in the water. So basically, Manx Shearwaters' eyes are placed so that prey capture is visually stimulated you know they have to see the prey before they try and latch onto it and we just thought that ocean clarity must be really important for this so they must you know ocean clarity must be a limiting factor to where they can actually catch their prey and we actually found that to be the case so in areas where the water was murkier they weren't able to dive as deep or at least they weren't diving as deep and that was probably because prey capture just becomes too difficult beyond a certain point and this is also backed up by the fact that in high cloud cover and in lower solar angles, so when the sun was lower in the sky, they were also diving shallower. So yeah, it, underwater, they're a visual predator. You know, they're following prey around using sight. And certainly yeah, as climate change ramps up the amount of wave action on our shores and over the whole continental shelf area, the water has been getting cloudier for the past few decades. So we have to think that it must be more difficult for uh, visual hunters to find their prey. And that was the point of this study, just to see how the differences in turbidity will affect their diving behaviour. So they're not diving as much either, and also their diving depth. So they're they're diving shallower than they would do in clearer water. Cold water, it is said sometimes, is uh, clearer than warm water. This seems to me surprising, having dived in places like Mauritius. Uh, where it is, everything is clear as a whistle. You can see 50 meters underwater, and going to places uh, up here, it's kind of cloudy. You don't see more than 15 meters or something like that. But is there an effect due to the change in the temperature of the water with global warming? The sea is getting warming. 
does that mean it's getting cloudier and harder for things like birds to navigate in it? Well, so the temperature effect is really to do with the composition of what's in the water. So the temperature differences might be causing changes in, say, the timing of plankton blooms. So we might see these huge areas of water just experiencing planktonic blooms that wouldn't have before. And this obviously, when there's a lot of life in the water, obviously there's you know, much reduced visibility. And even though it might sound like there's way more prey available, the plankton doesn't necessarily form a prey species for foraging visual hunters. And it actually might mask the prey that they're actually after. So in general, those big planktonic blooms can be quite harmful for seabirds. So there was one case in the Bering Sea where there's a huge, they're called coccolithophore uh, plankton bloom. And it was thought that, that, well, at the same time, the shearwaters in the area, it's a different species of shearwater, but there was this huge die-off. It's just thought that they couldn't find food. So a lot of the birds that were washing up on shore were emaciated, they were starving. And the timing of these plankton blooms is changing. So the amount of plankton in the water and how well you can see through it is changing because of that as well. And that's certainly another consequence of climate change, that we're seeing changes in the timing, intensity, the location of these. Jamie, uh, if Manx shearwaters are being affected by reduced visibility uh, in the ocean depths, presumably other visual predators are being similarly affected. Are you finding anything about that in other species? Well, we've started to think about it. It's not something that's been concentrated on too heavily in the literature so far. Now, we have seen that you know seals are more likely to get boycott in fishing nets when the water is cloudier. So that would indicate that they rely on sight as well underwater. And it's something that we just have to start thinking about when we're talking about climate change effects on different species. At the moment, it's something that's quite new. That we don't really know. One of the issues that often arises when it comes to the conservation of shearwaters in particular is that they're very long-lived birds and the fact that the adults survive for so long can mask the fact that their breeding success is being reduced. I know for species in the Mediterranean called the Balearic shearwater, which is closely related to the Manx shearwater, that's been a big factor. That's a critically endangered species. Despite the fact that the adults are numerous, you can still see them even off the Irish coast, they're just not breeding anymore. Is that a worry with Manx shearwaters as well? It is. We have no indication yet that the productivity has decreased, but they're really difficult to monitor because, you know, they are this nocturnal burrow-nesting seabird. It's really difficult to count them and even more difficult to tell how many are actually rearing chicks successfully, rather. So, realistically, prey is getting scarce in the ocean surrounding Ireland. So we don't know how successful they are when they're trying to bring food back for their chicks. And it's something that continued monitoring effort needs to be conducted to figure out. Because at the moment, the population is quite healthy as far as we know. The only decent estimates of population size were completed in 2000 for Seabird 2000 censuses. And more recently, again, for some unpublished data that's ongoing. Uh, So we'll see then if there's kind of a trend in the population. But again, that's only over 20 years. So as you say, on the scale of a Manx Shearwater's lifetime, that's not actually very long. So whether or not they're breeding successfully and their young are being recruited into the population might be quite difficult to tell. Another factor must be the fact that Manx shearwaters forage and travel over vast distances. They basically encompass the whole Atlantic Ocean. Um, are we seeing similar problems elsewhere in their range, perhaps off the coast of Brazil or places like that? It's really difficult to tell with the coast of Brazil because there's no breeding colonies. You know, so every Manx shearwater that ends up in Brazil won't really touch the land. So it's obviously much harder to count them when they're out there. A storminess must affect them. I mean, obviously, they're really powerful flyers and they use the wind to their advantage when they're flying. It might make food more difficult to find when it's stormy, especially if the ocean clarity is upset. It's really difficult to tell. We can kind of only infer these things for the moment because we can't uh, deploy tracking devices that can measure dive rate for that long, or we haven't done yet anyway. The technology is coming, but it's not quite there yet, you know. So where to next in that case? It would be really interesting to look at year, you know, year-round diving behaviour. So we know roughly that they do this big figure of eight over the Atlantic Ocean over the course of the year. And you know, are they doing similar things when they're in the southern Atlantic as when they're in the northern Atlantic? Now, they're under less constraints when they're in the non-breeding season. They don't have to find food for their chicks. So we think the pressure to find food is a lot lower when they're travelling about before the breeding season and after. I'll bet it is. Anyway, Jamie, thank you very much indeed. No problem, Bill. That's pretty much all we have time for today. Don't forget to visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash mini. My thanks to our broadcast coordinator, Jarlath Holland, and our researcher, John Bell O'Reilly. Until next time, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye.
And Mooney Goes Wild is presented and produced by Derek Mooney.